Welcome back to Hurdles and Hoots. This is your host, Karina. After two months of hiatus, I'm really excited to be back. And on this episode, I will have a very special guest. So stick around to listen in on that. Okay, so I have with me Professor Alexander Blum. And let's just jump in. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody about yourself? Hi, Karina. Well, I'm very happy to be here. My name is Dr. Alexander Mario Blum. I received my PhD from the joint doctoral program with UC Berkeley and San Francisco State University in special education. I received my master's at Cal State LA in special education where I got my teaching credential and my bachelor's in psychology and I went to community college before that. I teach at San Francisco State University as an adjunct faculty where we met. I teach the nature of autism, introduction to disability, and uh, now supervise student teachers. During these classes, we engage in seminar-like discussions where we explore disability and autism and the intersection of systems that exist throughout our society. I got into this field maybe 10, 12 years ago. I started in teaching. I, I did a credential program. A mild, moderate special education credential program at Cal State LA. Okay. This was this was a lot of fun. This was autism wasn't as popular or like talked about then in 2010, 2011 as it is today in mainstream conversation. I don't think. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was a very small program at Cal State LA, and I was doing a master's. And I was told, you know, you could do a thesis or take a comprehensive exam. I looked and I was like, why would I ever want to take an eight-hour comprehensive exam? I'll do a thesis. That mm-hmm. sounds good. I had a little bit of research experience in undergraduate when I went to Cal State Northridge for psychology. And, you know, it was interesting, but I didn't really have a researcher identity at that point. Have you had any experience with people on the spectrum prior to that? Actually, no, I didn't. I didn't really get into autism for the sense of, I have an experience or a relative or a friend or someone on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. It was actually more about cognition for me. Yeah. Autistic learners presented a, a different kind of thinking. That's really all I knew mm-hmm. at the time. And I was like, that's really interesting. Their meaning-making system is different than other people's meaning-making system. So how would you... Describe what it is to have autism based on your experience and the knowledge that you have. What does that mean? What is the autism spectrum? What is Asperger's? And now with more research and more information that people are hearing about, these words are more familiar, but what does that really mean? That's a good question. I, I used to try to be very clinical about these things. This is a clinical population, mm-hmm. right? ADHD, autism, bipolar, PTSD, clinical populations. And I tried to describe to a sort of medical model to like understand these things and to explain these things to other people. Mm-hmm. You got the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Health that says, you know, autism is characterized by three primary challenges, social communication, social interaction, and these repetitive restricted stereotype behaviors and interests. And, you know, they... They give classic examples of what these look like, you know, breakdown in communication by not understanding sarcasm 
or not understanding the context or not understanding the perspective taking, social communication, social interaction is impacted. And then you see these kind of restricted interests, lacking cars. Yeah. That type of repetitive behavior. Objects, more just a limited scope of things you want to talk about and do. And the thing is, you know, you have to understand autism was coined really in the 40s. Okay. So World it's fairly recent. Yeah. Autism wasn't always existed, but it wasn't a medical in the way it is now until uh, Leo Connor and Johns Hopkins University uh, found this unique population in his hospital. So it was born out of this institution. And, and, you know, other theories tried to explain autism. You had this kind of psychoanalytic theory that said, like, cold mothers gave birth to autistic kids. Right, that was its own thing for a while. And then there was and the term refrigerator mother, right? Refrigerator Which, mother, that came from that. Exactly. So could you explain a little bit about what refrigerator mother means? Well, yeah, it means that because you were a cold and heartless mother, your child is a heartless, non-empathetic kid. And what made people coined that? What made people say, well, it's your fault because this is what we see? What were the things back then that doctors or people were, were seeing that made them come to that conclusion? Well, if you're not seeing perspective taking to take place, you know, it seems like you don't care, right? It seems like you don't have emotion if, if you're not showing empathy. Mm -hmm. You must be a cold child. Now, why are you a cold child? Why don't you care about the perspectives of others? Why don't you care about the interests of others? Why don't you... But they're all interpreting behaviors in this way, right? Not the actual thinking of the kid, right? Right. The, the, it's, the, it's more based on what is expected or what is seen as the norm. People should they, react this way or say one thing or another. Yeah, and, and they used to do experiments with autistic kids that, you know, someone pretend to be in distress and they see if the kid would react appropriately. Mm -hmm. And they found differences in reaction. And said, look, they're, they're not, they don't care. There's no empathy. And it's like, no, that's not true. You know, but from a psychoanalytic perspective, that's what they thought. From a medical perspective, you know, they called it autism. And, you know, they said they're in their own self-world. But then, you know, later on, they found like, you know, language is a big component. Social language and it evolves, right? And you could take a neuroscience perspective, you can take a cognitive perspective, you can take a cultural perspective. There's now research on autistic culture and virtual environments. Mm -hmm. So depending on the lens you take, autism will look different. And then you got to include actual autistic people in this conversation, right? Right, exactly. So you have a bunch of non-autistic experts like me making comments about autism and autistic community we can only say so much, right? Our experiments show what they show or our data shows what it shows, yes, you know, but there's the perspective of the person themselves and that has to be considered. And would you say that there are not enough people that are on the spectrum who are being given the platforms to speak or are we just not listening? I think it's both. Mm. Um, you know, people, you know, there was this article on neurodiversity they did a survey about friends and families and autistic people and what they thought about neurodiversity and what they thought about autism, the different traits and experiences that come with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they found actually that the autistic community aligned very much in the sample with the neurodiversity perspective, like, you know, differences versus deficits, you know, different 
autism is a different mode of experience, different meaning-making system, right. rather than a series of deficits, right? But parents of autistic kids, you know, had a different experience often and saw neurodiversity and saw the challenges that come with autism as something they wanted to, like, you know, fix. This is where we're talking about deficits, right? So what is the difference yeah. or what is the, the mentality that sees it as a deficit? What is that? What is a deficit? A deficit is something that's, you know, lacking, something that needs to be remediated. It's something that's not in the norm. If everyone had the deficit, would it be a deficit? Autism seen from a deficit lens says they are lacking these skill sets, they are lacking these abilities, they are lacking this cognition. But difference would be, you know, a more neurodiverse perspective, something to the effect of, you know, hey, what about context, right? What about the situation? That has to play a role. We're talking about autism as this unitary deficit, that they're all monolith, they all share this lack of skill set, and that's not true, right? The context matters, and everyone is different in general. So, okay, the repetitive restricted behaviors and interests. The kid loves trains, mm -hmm. let's say. Loves them. That's all they talk about. That's all they want to play with. And if we're messing with that game, maybe there's a tantrum. If we take away that game, maybe there's a breakdown. Whatever the reason. They love those trains. Right. That's a repetitive, restricted behavior and interest, right? From mm -hmm. a medical perspective. Mm -hmm. Another perspective of trains specifically could be special interest areas, autistic passions. In that lens, trains are part of their identity now. You know, there's this kid I was reading about. He said the mom was saying, you know, he had this class project and he had to do a poster of something he liked. Okay. So, you know, the kid loved trains and... The mom thought he was going to do a poster on trains, right? You know, that's the passion. So anyways, the kid does the poster, the mom looks at it, and the poster's on movies. <laughs> and she's, like, confused. She's like, what happened to the trains? And, and he looks at her and he goes, Mom, you know, I like movies. The project was things I like. Mm -hmm. I am trains. Wow. So it's like, in that lens, you know, especially to become part of, identity just you know? like me saying oh i love to draw and sketch in my free time it's totally different yeah it's not just a hobby right and there was another experience a student i was teaching in class the special interest there was barney and the pro the concern was that you know he was an adult loving barney and their parents were like oh my gosh the bullying the picking all these negative things that are associated with an adult loving barney mm-hmm and they literally had to do a memorial service for Barney. Wow. Now, different ways to look at that. One, you say, oh, how dare you kill the special interest area? That's one perspective. Another perspective is, oh, my gosh, you did a ceremony and showed respect for something that had to pass in their perspective. Mm -hmm. right? But either way, they had to do something in this context. It wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't just a, it was uh, an so much more than that. A very unique special interest, yeah. Depending on the perspective you look at, you know, these things will look differently. Here's an example. When you're talking about trains, social deficits don't really present themselves the same way. They're taking turns talking. They're sharing the common interest. There's excitement. Mm -hmm. They're sharing. There's all these things that you don't see in a non-preferred activity, we'll say. Now, obviously, we need to be able to do non-preferred activities. I'm not making a case for doing that. But if you're telling me that the same deficits don't show themselves 
in both situations, then deficit in and of itself is situated by context. So let's talk about context and meaning making, which you mentioned, right? So the way of thinking, let's talk about that a little bit. What have you found in as far as cognitive, right? That area of yeah. like cognition, what have you found? So, there's one prominent theory called central coherence theory that basically says autistic people have trouble integrating all the little context information to understand the whole. For example, if someone's crying on their birthday because their pet passed away, you'd have to take that pet in consideration to know why this person's crying on the birthday. Normally, birthday's a happy day. Right. We don't normally cry on our birthdays out of sadness, mm-hmm. right? So, but if you piece that context in, along with it, they love that pet, along with they had it for 20 years, along with the A, B, and C, right? All that context to know why they're crying and perhaps even know why when you ask them, are you okay? And they look at you sarcastically and say, yes, I'm fine. <laughs> you got to know context for the sarcasm too. There's a breakdown if I mix on the context, right? And there's context everywhere in everything we do. Now, I'm not saying autistic people don't understand any context, but the theory is in line with the idea that context integration is challenging. So what would that look like in an everyday situation? How does that come into play? Let's say you are playing a basketball game. There are rules to this game. That really helps control what you should or should not do, right? Cheating, how to dribble the ball, how to shoot the ball, things like that. Okay, so that's very structured context, rule-governed system context. Mm -hmm. What about picking someone up when they fall? What about sportsmanship? What about letting the other person take out the ball instead of you, depending on the type of game you're playing? All these other context things are also less structured, but Mm -hmm. still context, right? Right. So autistic kids will do really well with kind of systems, structured context, locally driven, how to connect ideas together. It's like, okay, in the rule governing system, this is how basketball works. Mm -hmm. But then there's a cultural side to basketball too that requires more integration of world knowledge and memories than just rules that govern a system. We'll call that global. So they do really well with local rather than global. But this is a different way of looking at cognition because now you're saying wait a minute so it's not they have challenges with everything there's a context associated if it's highly structured and locally driven it's they do better than something that's more abstract and world knowledge driven Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah but it's not all or nothing right there's tendencies but at the same time there's theories that talk about them being really good with visual information visual spatial information images pictures and so they say hey if you give them pictures and visuals they'll do better with learning and cognition this means in reference to global they can still apply the global if there's more images or if there's more visual it helps them that to... was my theory mm. that was my theory okay right before they would say global is possible First, they would say there's a global deficit. Then over time, they say, no, global is possible if you warm them up, if you prime them. If you get them in the zone, then they'll be more likely to do global stuff. So would that mean just... reading would be like theme, main idea, big picture, forest beyond the trees. Mm -hmm. Local is like details, literal information, systems, organized, structured. And they started to say, oh, they have different strengths in these types of cognition. And my theory was... You know, and others think as well, 
that visuals can promote global thinking. For reading, for example, I thought comics would work better than text. And there's research that says comics are great for autistic learners because of the visuals. And there's research that says autistic people love comics often. And that is sometimes a special interest area. So I said, hey, give them comics instead of text. It's a win. You gave us last semester this article and it talked about manga and the autistic mind. That was the yeah. title of the article, Manga and the Autistic Mind. Yeah. So for anybody that's listening, definitely read that article. But it, it was really detailed on what exactly it is about manga and that specific style of comic yeah. that entices yeah. a person that's on the spectrum. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, Neil Cohn in the Netherlands, right? Tilburg University talks about visual language systems, that comics tap into this visual language system, that comics, you know, sequential images have grammar, mm -hmm. right? There's structure, there's explicit meaning, there's uh, modality, right? And he, he would say that manga is a Japanese visual language and Western comics are an American visual language. Right, they're different. And they, are over, they have properties that overlap, but they're different grammatical entities. And he would say... The, the article you're referring to says, talks about the idea of that, you know, manga is very landscape driven and very overpronounced expression driven, large eyes, big sweatshop, that the faces all kind of look the same in terms of iconicity. They're iconic, but the details, the hair, the clothing, the whatnot separates them. Details right. separate them. Whereas Western comics are more realistically drawn, rely heavily on dialogue mm -hmm. rather than landscapes. So the visual assumption is like, hey, if we got these visual principles in manga, recognizable faces and using details to separate them, hey, I'm good with details. I can, I can separate these characters very well. Oh, if I have trouble with inferring facial expressions, emotions, oh, these are very pronounced and over-exaggerated. I can really tap into this. Oh, you don't have to do dialogue so much. It's like environmentally driven landscape. I'm good with the images. I can see the big picture. I can see, you know, how these all work together. That was the argument for manga versus Western comics. But I was more interested in comics versus text mm -hmm. in general. Did a study where I had stories made that were either in text or comic format, but word for word the same. You know, I really thought it was going to work in the way that I thought it was going to work. So what did you think was going to happen? Or what did you expect? I thought comics were going to save the day. I had autistic and neurotypical adolescents take this test. And I thought they were all going to exceed in comics. And comics were just going to win. Right. Yeah. And that's and, not what happened. Know, I used statistics to predict success on this measure I made. On how much do you integrate your memories and experiences with your inferencing skills. So basically, if a kid gets a toy, sees someone play with it and gives it away, I ask you, why did he give it away? You have to make an inference. I didn't say why. You have to guess. Mm -hmm. You could say something very local and say, oh, because the kid was playing with it. That happened. It's a detail. It's literal. It's still true. I'm making an inference, but it's based on information that I saw. Versus saying, you know, some cultural reference like Sharon is caring. That'd be more global. Right, because okay. we need memories and culture and experiences to make that inference. Let's say, for example, let's just take sharing as caring. Now, would we see a pattern? Because we also know that every single person on the spectrum is different, right? right? You cannot see the same tendencies in every person. There's no one fixed way to categorize a person with autism. 
So let's say I take that sharing is caring. I tell a student of mine, this is why we can give toys to somebody else because we care when we're sharing. Now, will that mean that we can assume they will do that across the board in any situation and there will be no variable? No, it's more like they'll be more likely to answer based on something explicit they saw than some sort of cultural norm. Mm -hmm. They'll go on the detail more than the world. Not guarantee, right. not every time, but there's a disposition towards the local because it makes sense. That must be why he gave the toy away. But, you know, does that mean they can't say share and care? Absolutely not. Maybe if you prime them, say, hey, can you give me something a little bigger? They'll say it. But on their own, they'll tend to do local. Okay. And, that, and I use that on my measure. And I use, does your diagnosis category predict whether you'll do local or global? And it predicted negative was local and positive was global. And the highest category is doing both together. So how would you use the information that you found, right, based on your research and using comics to hopefully be able to figure out how it is that they think and just the cognition part of it. Now, how can we take that information? Or let me just ask, what were the results in the end? What so, did you find? So autism diagnosis did predict local. Okay. I expected that. Comics also were negative which I did not expect. I did not <laughs> promote global in anybody. Uh -huh. And then I did an interaction where I said, what if you're autistic and you got a comment? Is that something special there? And that also came out negative and not global. Okay. And I was kind of panicking at that point because my whole research was based on comments. Right. And then I added a third variable that I asked everyone that I didn't know was going to be such a big variable, but I asked like, how much experience do you even have with comments? Zero through three, right? Zero, I don't mess with them. One, I have a little. Two, more than a little, less than a lot. And three, I have a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious. Do you even... And when you include that variable, the more experience you have, the better you did on the inference measure. To the point that if you were autistic and got a comic and had full comic experience, there was no more difference between you and the neurotypical peers on this outcome measure. So now let's take that information, right? Experience. Experience matters. Is, yes. In other context, words, experience. Experience, context, it matters. So now with me wanting to, I'm just thinking about parents and families and guardians and kids that are on the spectrum now, right? With this pandemic going on. So taking that into consideration and knowing that there's so many schools doing distance learning, how do we apply this importance of experience matters into that context of distance learning? How can we use that information to make sure that we help students succeed while they're learning from home? Yeah, yeah. so because they have often these strengths and like systems, objects, predictable things, change can be very anxiety ridden there's a lot of change happening right now in schools. Like you said, with distance learning, new context, new classroom, virtual, synchronous, asynchronous, you know, this could be alarming for someone on the spectrum, right? It's like, well, I don't have no idea what to expect. And my education is on the line. You got to teach the context of what's coming up. You got to practice the context. Mm -hmm. You got to prepare for the context. What does that mean? It means talk about it. It means 
do a comic strip on it. Draw it out. What do you expect? Mess with the endings of the panels. Create alternate endings for alternate situations that they may encounter. The more experience they have comics, the more they'll get the comics. And Emily Coderre in the University of Vermont has this whole thing on the visual ease assumption with autism and visuals. And she also supports the notion that, listen, visuals are not universal. Comics are not universal. Neil Conan Evans says comics are universal. Experience matters. Fluency, experience, literacy matters. Mm -hmm. So we got to promote this in experiences. So doing things like creating the comics through conversation using like Carol Gray's, you know, manual on how to build comics could be helpful in preparing for a virtual environment and reducing the anxiety that comes with change. You know, these are things we could practice at home. We could even do this with narratives, right? When you do read-alouds with kids or when kids read narratives on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Characters are people. There's context associated with those characters in those books. Talk about those things. Build the context. Help understand deeper comprehension through understanding the context of why people do what they do, how they do it, what are the lessons, what are the themes. I mean, here's an example of a local lesson. There's a story of a kid's kicking a three-legged dog. They ask the kids, what's the lesson? They say, don't kick three-legged dogs. True. Uh-huh. But it's very literal. Right. That's literally what the story was. And you're just, and it's still a lesson, but it's not global necessarily. So how do we, or how do parents at home take something that easily can be applied in local and how can they stretch that to make it global? Or what is you know, one thing that can be done? My, my, my theory that I recently published in the journal Reading Writing is to extend that. David Pearson in 1978 talked about question-answer relationships that were text-based, which would be like local, or memory-based, script-based, which would be the global. I think doing both together is even better, mixing the local and global. So why did he give the toy away? Because he was playing with it and sharing his caring. Honor both. Integrating the local and global is the best thing you do. Don't dismiss the local. The local is the foundation for the global. And the global is the foundation for doing them both together. And that would be the best way to help them succeed. That's the best way. Right? Mix it together. Don't just replace it. So what would a conversation, let's just say for the sake of like role playing, before we you know, wrap up and leave our listeners just kind of thinking about this, because what I really want everyone to take away from this is that there is so much more to a person on the spectrum than the tendencies or the tantrums or just what is immediately noticed, right? Like it just goes so much deeper than that. And that's why I'm really glad that you talked about cognition because that's really the biggest part of it, I think, right? It's one way to look at things. So let's say a parent at home with their child. School has already started for some, maybe for some it'll start next week. And this is a change, right? There isn't the usual teacher. They're not in the usual building where they know that they're learning. They're not surrounded by the friends that they had. The structure of their day is totally different. Maybe mom and dad are working from home. So one minute they're doing one thing, one minute they're doing the next. What are your thoughts on that? How can we, of course, we can't help the situation, right? Like there's just so many things that are changing because of the pandemic. Right. But in one single day, what are like small things that a parent or guardian can do to at least help 
a child, you know, go one step forward? You know, I think honoring choice and agency, decision-making, help them build their own environment. And scaffold it, support it, give options, accommodate, do what you got to do to help make it happen. But at the end of the day, let them be captain of the ship and you be a good skipper who's been around the block a few times. I love that. That is such right? a, yeah. Now, obviously, you got to be a parent. And if there's life-dangering things, you know, obviously step in and like, but like the more we could go towards mm-hmm. agency, right? Saying, well, you're about to have this virtual world. What can we do to this room to make it best for your virtual world? And this is, and here's some comics on what virtual world looks like. Here's some books on what people do in these situations to give you some warm up. What, you know, build the context. Right. And then use the environments to help promote the context. A lot of sensory needs are needed. Make sure there's sensory options in the room, if you can, during this learning. So these things can take place at the same time. If they need a break or if they need to do something to stimulate, depending mm-hmm. on if they have a high threshold or a low threshold. I think autonomy and agency, self-governing and decision-making, if we can move towards those as best we can, I think that will honor the person. I agree. And I think respect their diversity and their mode of experience. But at the same time, you're supporting, right? You're building context, you're preparing, you're priming. One big thing, the neurodiversity thing, you know, they say, oh, if you're so neurodiverse, you don't need any help, right? You're just different. No, no, that's not true. That's not what they're trying to say. And I'm not claiming to know everything, but they're not saying there are no accommodations needed. They're not saying there is no help needed. But they are saying you don't need to pathologize it and turn it into disease in the way that people tend to do it. Yes. And I think that's the difference. Yeah. We over-pathologize things. Yeah. And, and I mean, it immediately makes me think about a story a friend of mine told me. She has a son who is on the spectrum. She said they were at the store. There was an interaction between her and her son. And, of course, like he reacted to it in a way that is expected, I think, for someone that's on the spectrum. But nobody else in the store knows he's on the spectrum. It's not something that's immediately visible, right? You have to know right. the family. You have to know the person. And so he reacted and, you know, she basically heard um, a a woman say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she doesn't know how to control her child. And Uh. and, you know, so I think about that and I'm just like, this is exactly why I wanted to, you know, talk to you about this. And this is really the root of why I even started the podcast, because I think there's just so much stigma. There are so many misconceptions that. Of course, right? Like I'm still learning so much, but I at least want to start shattering some of that. But just to add to what you're saying, how I said, you know, depending on the lens you take, autism will look differently. Two things that I feel intersect with everything is capitalism and race. Again, I'm not claiming to be an expert on capitalism and race, but I had one person say to me, that when we were talking about the refrigerator mother, she said, oh, that's nice. I probably wouldn't even have the opportunity to be an offer, a refrigerator mother. And I go, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I'm black. Black people weren't seen as having autistic kids at a certain time. They were seen as having troubled kids. Wealthy white people had the luxury of a diagnosis of autism. Right? So some people didn't even have the opportunity to be a refrigerator mother, she's saying. Right? So race definitely intersects with this mm-hmm. and capitalism i mean that's our very government so that has to intersect with everything what does it mean to be a productive member of society what does it mean to be normative what does it mean 
to operate in a capitalist society. So the point is, we have to strive for coherence and understanding the whole and all the different parts that make up that whole. Yep, I agree. I completely agree. If you could just have the listeners take away one thing, what would that be to move forward in the right direction? We got to learn to be flexible with our thinking, our attitudes, our behaviors, our dispositions, our mindsets. Can't be so rigid yeah. to where we don't make room for other people to enter. Mm -hmm. and that's right. That's how we have to be accessible to one another. Yeah. Yeah, it really does start with us, honestly, to start changing the systems, right? Attitudes and systems, yeah. they, they go hand in hand. You yeah. know, maybe we'll start seeing TV shows with autistic characters that are not savant and, and not at the center of the show for being autistic and gifted. And because they're gifted, we allow their autistic tendencies, right? Why can't there just be a regular autistic guy on the show? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I actually have recommended this book and have read it. It's called uh, Look Me in the Eye. And it is by John Elder Robeson. He, you know, he's on the spectrum. He was just totally fascinated by music and sound and machinery and combined that. And he actually wrote this story of his life with Asperger's through his lens and what that was like for him. And I, I always recommend that to people when they're looking for book reads because it really allows for us to understand from somebody that's experiencing the world this way, right? And, and I really yeah. love that you emphasized earlier that we need to be having these conversations with people on the spectrum, yes. not just between us neurotypicals, but with other people who are experiencing the world differently. So for anybody that's listening, I highly recommend it. It's Look Me in the Eye. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that everybody that was listening learned a thing or two from listening to this conversation. And the hope here is really that we would just walk away seeing things differently, reacting to things differently. And until next time, this is Karina and this is Professor Alexander Blum, who is located in the Bay Area. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, thank you. All right. This is it for today, everybody. Until next time, this is Karina at Hurdles and Hoops. This podcast episode was produced by Daniel Lamb. Tune in every Saturday morning for the next episode. Until then, this is Karina at Hurdles and Hoots. Thank you.